Welcome to Life Centered, a podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. I'm Tim McGee, and in this episode, I'm joined by Ashin Fanzi. Ashin is active at the critical hub of sustainability and business. As a translator between people, cultures, technology, and ideas, he has been able to bring principles from nature to help craft sustainable outcomes. His work has spanned biotech, aerospace, electronics, and he currently works as a senior manager at Dassault Systems. If you aren't familiar with Dassault, you are likely familiar with the products they help create as engineers throughout the world use their software to craft our modern society. Through our conversation, Ashin and I touch on the emerging Internet of Things, the changing desires in our high-tech products, the art of entrepreneurship, and we even take a crack at a fresh perspective on what's next for sustainability. Enjoy. Well, you know, I, I think there's an area that has a huge amount of potential to change the way we interact with the natural world, even more so than robotics. And that's the Internet of Things. So this is the idea that our everyday objects can be imbued with the ability to transmit data to other objects, to humans, to data collectors, to big data processing systems. And that's through a few seemingly unrelated advances. So first of all, sensor technology is getting cheap and ubiquitous. It's now a lot easier to collect data on temperature and energy consumption and uh, acceleration of things and position and GPS location and how wet something is and all sorts of different characteristics. And then the fact that broadband internet is becoming more and more not quite universal, but at least found in a lot of places and has uh, a lot of uh, more reliable connectivity. Uh, if that's paired with being run on renewable energy, then has a tremendous amount of upside to connecting sensors and aggregators of information. And that's the other piece is sort of the ability to, to take a bunch of different data points and start to do a lot of cloud computing on them and, and, and find the trends to then make corrections and make optimizations that will really help our, our, our world. So I think that has a really huge impact on our sustainability potential as a society because we can start to figure out all the crazy dumb things that we do, the things that, by the way, nature has easily figured out over the last 3.8 billion years and start to mimic not just the individual organisms, but the ecosystems and the the interrelations, interrelationships of the different populations and communities, plants and animals, energy producers, consumers, decomposers, and start to actually figure out how they play well together and how we can create our technical metabolism to beat with the same pulse as the biological metabolism. Whenever I hear the Internet of Things, I, I always start to imagine a future that is very Harry Potter-esque. So where where I will have a wand and I'll be able to go out and like, you know, say a couple of fancy words and shake my wand in a way and things will start to move and do stuff around me because of the things that you're talking about, because the systems will be interconnected and smart and know 
be able to intuit what I want, what's happened in the past, how this information is flowing, and it'll all just be a big Harry Potter world. And that's where I think we're heading um, in some respects with our own technology to be more magical. I mean, and I also, I love that saying, you know, that, <laughs> so any sufficiently advanced technology is uh, indistinguishable from magic. And you said that's an Arthur C. Clarke quote, and I, I attribute it to Asimov, which was incorrect on my part. But the 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 thing that um, I might change about that is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from nature, I think is also applicable. Because a lot of times as a biologist, when I look to nature and I see sunlight hitting you know, a photo center, I don't see this, right? But I imagine it's hitting this leaf and I know that it's, on the quantum level is being channeled into different kinds of energy. And it's just this mind bending technology that seems like magic. And so when I see nature, I see this sort of, it's a incredibly engineered world. Uh, Of course it's not engineered, it's evolved and it's been, it seems magical. And I, and I, and I do feel like our technology is increasingly able to capture that and move in that direction. And so this internet of things is inevitable, uh, just because we know in nature that that, that, that transfer of information is information's cheap, right? And it's material that's, exp- and it's material that's expensive, which leads me to ask a couple of questions from you because you deal with a lot of, um, you know, how do we deal with the materials in our world? How do we think about um, this change from where we're an information intense kind of manufacturing and systems per perspective is where we want to go. Uh, whereas right now we're sort of a uh, single bandaid do this thing here or design for obsolescence. And we sort of have blinders on. And so um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, the the kind of change that you're trying to create to make that make that bigger perspective happen. First of all, you're you're not far off by envisioning a Harry Potter esque world. In fact, there's a guy at the uh, professor at the MIT Media Lab named David Rose who actually calls them enchanted objects mm. instead of saying IoT enabled objects. He calls them enchanted objects, and his whole point is that we, in the future, will not simply interact with this, as he calls it, flat black piece of glass in our hands, but rather with our everyday objects, and they will be imbued with the ability to communicate to other objects and to our lives and to our connected world. And so what I think a lot about is, what is the future of these devices, these collections of really exotic materials that we hold in our hands and interact with every day? And what's the future of design in a world where we're moving towards value sold as a service as opposed to the accretion of things as a proxy to happiness? So, for example, we have this decades or centuries long obsession with planned obsolescence, right? So your mobile phone is perfectly functional for probably a good 10 years. If you, let's say, if you assume that you can use it with outdated apps and infrastructure, if you don't mind that your 
sort of being left behind by the new and the snazzy, you can still use it to do many of its basic functions years after the typical technological lifespan. And yet, when we build them, the materials are, are fairly locked in. And it's kind of by design that you most of our devices, you can't access, or you can't easily access most of the materials in them. If you think about how crazy that is, for example, uh, a ton of discarded mobile phones has about 200 grams of gold for every ton of mobile phones. Mm. The original ore that was smelted from the original gold mine, a highly productive gold mine, will yield about 40 grams per ton <laughs> of gold, of pure gold. So a pile of cell phones has five times the concentration of gold than the original gold mine. That's and you're, crazy. You're, your phone's in your pocket right now. You're literally sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> and yet we throw away half a million mobile phones into a landfill in the U.S. every single day. And so you think about, and that's purely just one element. That's just gold. And that's also just on an elemental level. So there's, there's a lot of precious metals, rare earths, and other things that, by the way, if we keep digging them out of the ground and using them and then throwing them away in, in a way that's inaccessible, eventually we're going to run out. I mean, it's just very simple math. And, the, and but, the, those metals are not uh, exactly, um, it, the extraction of them is not a friendly pro pro process to the not planet at all. or to the people who live on top of them. Absolutely. There are entire slave operations that are built on extracting these. It's the whole idea of conflict minerals. Uh, the the Dodd-Frank Act of the United States passed a few years ago had a section that said, by the way, you can't buy any tin, tantalum, tungsten, or gold, or a, any product that contains any of what, what are called 3TG metals that are mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo or any country that borders the DRC. And it was a very small provision put into a, the, the same act that created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, of all things, but it's had really big repercussions in our world and in, in the high-tech world because not because necessarily there aren't any other places to mine those elements, but simply because when you have a, a gram of, of tantalum sitting in your manufacturing operation in a, in a component, it's, it's an element. It's really hard to figure out where it comes from. And so we've had to sort of go back and create these big chains of custody of right back all the way to the smelter to figure out where our stuff comes from and really understand the, the points of origin of our materials, and also, in the process, create this chain of custody that can allow us to start to understand the social and environmental burdens associated with all of the materials that, that are coming in. Well, and, so, and so now we have this sense of all of the environmental and social and economic burdens of the elements that are coming into the devices that we're making. We fashion them into these components we put them into these devices, we use them for a few months, and then we throw them away. Yeah. And all of those associated burdens are then replicated again when we, when we run the value chain again in the linear direction. And it, it's crazy, right? We're, we're starting to think about, well, we've, we've already put all this, this literal blood, sweat, and tears into these devices, into these components. What we, let's extract that value again. It's from a purely economic standpoint, 
it makes sense from a societal standpoint. It, it's ludicrous that we're not extracting that value and reusing them. Well, and to me, that was, thank you, Ashin. That was super interesting. Uh, what I didn't realize was the impact that that policy would have on uh, sort of requiring uh, manufacturers of within the tech industry to have that sourcing uh, information. I had always assumed that everyone would know that, that it would just be part of smart business, but you're totally right that it, that, yeah, that, that, that's not exactly how it goes and that you're just like, Oh yeah, no, that tungsten just shows up at my die. I don't know where it comes from. It could come from anywhere. Um, and uh, now uh, in this day and age that we are uh, more cognizant of, of that, and that we've built information systems to allow us to see, peer back into the history of that manufacturing and also potentially, as you're saying, maybe peer forward into where that could go. You know, a, a quick story for you. Uh, in, a, in a previous job, I was doing some consulting work. I was doing a life cycle assessment study of a simple office product. It was a three-ring binder, and it's a pretty simple device, if you will. It's got a PVC shell, it's got a couple of cardboard inserts, and it's got that little steel binder clip that holds the, the three uh, holes together, right? And so we were doing this LCA study, life cycle assessment, and we said, okay, what grade of, of stainless steel is, is this little steel clip? And they said, what do you mean what grade of stainless? It's just, we just we buy it from China, it arrives, and we use it. And so we asked some questions, and we asked them to look into it. They came back a few weeks later, and they said, you know, we're really glad that you asked us to look into that, because it turns out that the grade of stainless that we get from us, our supplier actually varies month to month, depending on the, the spot commodity price of the cobalt and copper and nickel and other things that go into stainless steel. And so, therefore, the strength and the quality of it varies month to month, and we just had no idea. And of course, from an environmental perspective, that also means that the the burden or the impact of, of that stainless steel changes from month to month or shipment to shipment. And so one of the things we realize is that passing these laws, having these standards around supply chain start to uncover the different crazy things that we do upstream in terms of the materials that we use and the different various burdens associated with that and the fact that we've optimized purely on price and with something i'm sure we'll talk about more as well today is, is the downstream impacts what do we do with the things after the first intended use and figure out how do we optimize for that as well yeah i mean because that's an interesting uh conundrum because uh, we are in the world we're in today we manufacture things and you know the juggernaut is moving forward and i i Sometimes I think, especially in the sustainability community, people feel despondent at, at times with just like, gosh, everything seems so hard. It's so big. Um, and I'm trying to recycle my tin cans. That's not going to make a difference kind of thing. Uh, like the scales of impact of what needs to be achieved and the scales of actions that people ask you to do, they don't match up. And so... I think there's something very interesting in the position you're in, in, in the company you're in, which is um, looking at it from a systems perspective and seeing what kind of systems can we put in place to tackle these systemic issues. And, and downstream seems to be uh, one of those things that we can start to tackle. It's the reason for sure that I work in the corporate sustainability profession. I have no illusions that corporations have been 
the source of all environmental success in the last so many years. In fact, sometimes quite the opposite. But the thing about the corporate world is that we hold the market levers to create change. And so what I think a lot about is not can we create a product that is more sustainable than the next product, right? Because that's sustainability on a relative scale. What I think about is sustainability on an absolute scale. What does it actually mean to create a resilient, everlasting industrial ecology? That should really be our ultimate definition of sustainability. And to do that, we can't just change the materials that we use and make them a little bit less bad. We can't just change the processes that we use in manufacturing and make them a little bit more energy efficient. We have to fundamentally change the business models that underlie a lot of these capital systems, a lot of these production systems, and a lot of these consumer behaviors. So, for example, this idea of, of planned obsolescence, right? So we buy something, it lasts for an X amount of time so that we can go back to the store and buy a new one. Well, what if we could create a new type of system where the manufacturer has essentially lent us the product to get value out of it. And when they have a better product that'll provide more value, we simply give it back. And they've planned on receiving it back. They disassemble it. They reuse the components that they designed to be modular and build them into a new device or a new product or a new way of delivering us value. And they give it back to us and we continue to be happy customers and getting even more value that's totally disconnected, totally disaggregated from the actual stuff that they are, let's say, lending us or leasing us or in whatever ownership model, giving us such that they expect it back. Mm -hmm. And that last bit is really different because if you expect something back, you design it so that you can do something with it once you get it back. And if you spend a lot of your own intellectual property and your own custom manufacturing systems and your own very cleverly crafted materials and you use all of that capital to build something beautiful, and you expect it to come back, you better believe that you want to capture some of that value, some of that beauty, and some of that intelligence that you imbued the object with when it comes back to you. So you want to make it as easily disassemblable as possible. You want to make it so that you can reuse the components that you think will outlast the, the overall product. You make it so that for components that you can't reuse, you can separate them. You don't weld different metals together. You don't glue things together because that's more difficult to separate them. Or if you do glue them together, you use a benign glue that you can easily use the right solvent to get apart and therefore be able to reuse or recycle the two constituent materials. So you do these things so that you are able to put together something that delivers value and then easily take it apart and reassemble it in a new way. <clears throat> and for me, when I think of the reassembly and the the the, the things that cost the most to make uh, are the electronics that are in our world today. So I I sometimes look at the cell phone. You look at that. There's a, there was a, a project called Phone Blocks, which I think Google started work at working on, but there may have been issues there where they wanted to create essentially 
this system of parts that can be put together, customized, used. And then if you wanted to upgrade your camera, it's only one piece of that puzzle. And then somebody else could use that other block or you could, you know, it goes back into the market of blocks kind of idea. So you have this whole system of um, an, a phone that can be assembled and taken apart uh, by the user themselves. Um, and uh, so for me, I thought that's that was fascinating, and yet it hasn't come to pass. It hasn't been as um, easy to execute on those kinds of systems as I maybe it, I had expected it to move much faster than I, I think it has. And I don't quite you know, know the you issues. know Tim the you know Tim though there are pockets where that really is becoming the norm quietly. So for example, I was speaking to someone who's done a lot of thinking and a lot of work on this. Uh, Kyle Leans, who's, who's the founder of a website called iFixit, which provides teardown documentation for electronics and things like that. You may know about it from looking at the how to replace an iPhone battery and that kind of documentation. But he actually goes much deeper and into different industries. So he gave, for example, uh, Patagonia, their luggage that they sell, they actually, on their website, provide a step-by-step manual for how to repair the luggage handle, for example. So if the luggage handle breaks, and they've actually designed it so that the, the parts that you need to replace are sort of bright red when you open it up. You can unscrew this, unscrew that. They'll ship you a new handle. You put it in. You set it up. You put it back together, and voila, your luggage is self-repaired. And it's the idea is... Rather than taking this big bulky thing and chipping into them because they have this lifetime war- uh, warranty or guarantee so that it's a product that should last uh, for as long as you need it to last. But they've also thought about what's the lightest and most earth-friendly and consumer-friendly, life-centric way of keeping your product continuously providing you value. And so that's, you know, in, in the, uh, the apparel luggage industry, He's provided examples in other industries like heavy machinery where purchasing some of these some large industrial equipment, they actually provide these manuals for how to, to take it apart and repair commonly worn parts of it so that you can get more and more value out of it. And in fact, some of these companies have actually created a new revenue stream by reselling these parts to their customers. So A, it brings in more value for products that have already been sold, and B, retains this relationship with their customers and, and retains them as loyal customers because they're getting more and more and prolonged value from your the, the products that you originally sold them. So it's a, a new model of doing, new way of doing business that's not planned obsolescence, but rather planned longevity. And I think that this is, there's, there's pockets of, places and, and industries where this is occurring. And one of the things that I've talked with Kyle about is how do we bring this really squarely into the high-tech space? So that's something that we've been thinking a lot about. I, I really like the term planned longevity. I think that needs to catch on. I th- It reminded me of this concept, and I don't know if this is the right word, but um, called mana. And it's it was described to me as... You know, let's say you have a sail on a boat and um, and you're Hawaiian because the mana is a Hawaiian word and you end up the sail tears and it rips. Well, you don't throw that sail away. You patch it. You fix it. And you know now 
where it's strong, where it's weak, where you've reinforced it, where, and it has more mana. Like it has more power because there's more information embedded in that. There's more experience. There's more of your life and history as in as as part of that object. And uh, I I feel like yeah, too often we divorce ourselves from our technology, and it's not you know it's this like this clear piece of glass that is not ours. You know that it's not it hasn't experienced any mana is the perfect thing. It's this perfect. But what if you know the scratch you could repair or you could figure out ways to you know the bat extend the battery life longer or you know just ways or yeah, take the camera and make it your own somehow. I I feel like that idea of of longevity of making it your own um, is a very powerful one and one that would be exciting to see how that transfers to our own technology. You know, back when I was in college and I was a lot geekier than I care to admit openly now, I had a, a desktop, and if you if you peeled back the duct tape on the cover and you slid it off, you'd see that I'd messed with just about every component on there. And most of it was working when I messed with it, and may not have been working quite so well after I messed with it, but I knew a lot about it, and I learned about it, and I was able to swap things in and out, and... For better or for worse, warts and all, it was it was kind of mine, and, and I knew a lot about it, and I knew how to fix it if it really if it really broke. And I think these days, our devices are just black boxes. You know, Kyle is is fond of saying, "If you can't fix it, it's not yours." Huh? Yeah, I I I feel like I had this. Uh, my first experience was this with <clears throat> my first experience of this was with my grandfather who was lamenting how cars were getting so complex because he used to be able to take apart like a VW engine in like a day or something and put it back together. And now uh, just couldn't, you know, all of the new technologies that were in it at, at the time. And he just, you know, you can't touch it without breaking all the warranties and everything. The green ooze just drips out of the car and nobody knows what it is. And it's just crazy stuff. Um, you know, though, Tim, you know, we, we may lament the loss of our DIY culture, but the reality is that the world has changed, society's moved on, we value different things. So, for example, I read about an experiment that one of the laptop manufacturers made where they had a laptop that was a little bit more easily configurable, upgradable, you could get to some of the, the memory slots and things like that. Uh, and they produced that version, and then they produced another version, which was pretty much locked in, and it wasn't upgradable. But because it didn't have space to be able to upgrade, it was thinner, and it was a little bit lighter. And consumers voted with their dollars for that thinner, lighter laptop that was a total black box that they couldn't touch. And I feel like society has sort of gone in that direction, and that's okay, because we tell our companies what we value as consumers. What we in the corporate world have to think about is as society's values change, we may not anymore give people the tool or we'll give people the tools to fix their products and to, to dismantle and, and recycle their products for those who want it. But for others, we have to set up infrastructure to figure out how we can get those back. And maybe as many of the mobile phone carriers do, they'll say, look, bring your phone back and we'll give you a credit towards a new phone. And so with your old phone, they will resell it into the developing world where 
they don't need quite as cutting-edge technology. Or if they can't resell it, they'll try to dismantle it and reuse some of the parts and the materials. So it's on us in the corporate world to set up the appropriate infrastructure to make it easy for the consumer, however the consumer wants to interact with those objects, to be able to easily do the responsible thing with them. Uh, I think that's a trend in a lot of industries, this this moving away from longevity to uh, maybe more consumer-friendly items, easier to purchase, easier to buy, cheaper, lighter, better, faster, uh, more comfortable, whatever it is. Um, but they might not last as long, and we we make that trade-off as consumers. Uh, but the industries, it then creates this huge back-end problem of what happens to all of that now increasing stuff, uh, both on the front side, the production of it. How do we make that? more beneficial make that a regenerative part and on the backside, where does all that stuff go um i know in the clothing industry fast fashion that's a big it's a big challenge you have quick quick you know jeans that that only last a couple washes and things like that and people are like oh well I, they're really cheap and i just bought them and uh i'll you know i'll get another pair um but we haven't necessarily set up systems to accommodate that or production methods that that take that into account. You know, and I think one of the things coming back to the central topic of the podcast of looking to life for design principles, one of the things we realize about products, quote unquote, in the natural world is that they're not always espousing this idea of longevity, right? If you think about species that grow slowly, reproduce slowly, what we might call case-selected species, that's contrasted by uh, the type of species we call R-selected that takes resources quickly, distributes them in terms of offspring very quickly and cheaply. Uh, the canonical example, let's say, is a dandelion or some other type of weed or a wildflower that just grows quickly in a season. It's an annual. It dies. It disperses its seed to new, uh, to new fields and, and kind of moves on. Well, if you think about it, they both have very different reproductive strategies, but they also have very different sustainability strategies. So if a dandelion disperses 100 seeds and 30 of them take into new flowers, the, the rest will actually biodegrade and enrich the soil for their fellow seeds, for, for all of plant life, because if they degraded and uh, if they uh, decomposed and, and degraded the soil, they would prevent their fellow dandelions from, from flowering. And so the analogy into our world is coming back to clothing, as you had talked about. So I mentioned Patagonia, which has this, what we might call case-selected type of strategy, where you have products that last for a long time. They're expensive. Uh, I went on to the Patagonia website, and uh, I looked at jackets, and I looked at my mortgage, and the numbers were in the same ballpark. For, I mean, there's some beautiful things there, but you know, hopefully that's the last really nice weather, all-weather jacket you're going to buy. If you look at the fast fashion sector of apparel, they have a very different strategy of getting to market. But it also means that they can have a very different sustainability strategy. So, for example, H&M, one of the classic fast fashion uh, design houses, one of the things they're doing is collecting uh, thousands and thousands of T-shirts, cotton T-shirts, and using those to recycle for new material. And so their concept is kind of similar to the idea of dandelion seeds, right? 
we're going to put a lot of stuff out there because that's our model of getting the latest fashion out there and having people buy it and not pay too much for it. But we're going to bring that material back and make sure that it cycles back into the industrial apparel ecosystem so that we don't just throw things out there and sort of clutter the world with all of our designs and our materials without thinking about how to close that loop. So there are many different types of strategies that one can use. Even if you look to sort of life-centric design, there's, there's not this one, this is the most beautiful way of doing things. There's a, an infinite number of possibilities of learning from how to set up our product systems. I love that. <clears throat> and, you know, the dandelion pioneering species, uh, those strategies, one of the things that I find useful is those strategies tend to be ones that are work well in uh, highly disruptive or highly dynamic environments, things that change all the time. You, Those strategies seem to be more successful, whereas things that are a little bit more stayed, a little bit more stable, uh, longer term, um, the sort of case selected, the longer term, the higher investment, longer lasting, tends to be a better strategy, at least that seems to be a big ecological trend in the natural world. And I'm, of course, I'm sure there are exceptions, but, but that's the big trend. And I, uh, I always find that interesting uh, talking with companies and asking them, you know, which, which one are you in? Are you in a fast moving, highly dynamic, everything's changing all the time? Or are you, things are going to be the same five years ago as they are five years from now. And, you know, uh, we're trying to figure out how do we be sustainable in this space? Um, I think that's a, that to me, that's a great leading in question. And I loved the way you just described that as different strategies and both can be sustainable, but your, your emphasis might need to be on different parts of that system. Absolutely. Cool. We're done. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> you know, there's, there's actually a really interesting example of what you just described in terms of, <clears throat> what's the best strategy to enter a new market? So this is an example I use in one of my classes. If you look at the introduction of some of the first laptops, uh, IBM, when they were introducing their mobile computer, they went and interviewed a whole bunch of potential customers. And they said, what exactly do you want in a computer that you can take with you? Some of them said we need it to last a long time in terms of battery life. Some of them said we need a big screen because I need to calculate stuff on my spreadsheets when I'm at home. Some of them said a lot of different things. And so they kind of took all of those things and found the optimal solution and they made this one sort of uh, you know compromised laptop, if you will, uh, and, and put it out to market. Whereas Toshiba, they took a different approach. They said nobody has this yet. So nobody really knows how they're going to use it. So they made one with a long battery life. They made one with a big screen. They made one with a fast computing power. They made one that was incredibly light, and you could take it on an airplane. And they just sort of threw these products out there. As you can tell, the IBM approach is much more of a case-selected, careful growth strategy, whereas the Toshiba strategy was, let's throw things out there and see what sticks. And... I won't tell you how it goes, but let's just say Toshiba is still making laptops today. I feel like we jumped into some conversations, but I wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the kind people who listen to the podcast so they know a little bit of where you came from, um, a little bit about you, just a, your, your audio CV, if you will. Certainly. 
So I started uh, in college. I was uh, studied chemical engineering with uh, a little bit of computer science in that background. And I, I graduated. I wanted to go into sustainability, but it wasn't really a thing then. So I ended up going into the biotech sector. And, Ashim, and where where in the country were you doing this kind of stuff? Have you always been in New England? Mostly, yes. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, well, I, I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, <laughs> and I uh, I and spent you, my early childhood living up in up north in Minnesota. And and you were a Pats fan even then. Mm, not quite, not quite. <laughs> but I've I've lived in the Boston area since I was about eight years old. So. Uh, I've I've lived here for quite some time. I went to college in upstate New York, um, did engineering at, at Cornell, and then uh, came back to the Boston area. So I worked in, in biotech and was really trying to explore some interesting things that we did with biotech, uh, and I realized that a lot of what we do is pretty much make drugs. Um, but I really fell in love with the idea of biomimicry when I was in biotech. That was one pivotal experience, and the other was becoming a chemical safety officer of one of the biotech companies that I worked for and realizing how much of end of tailpipe types of solutions we do to mitigate the impacts of the chemicals that we use, uh, you know, from the cytotoxins that we use in, in direct drug applications to just some of the solvents in which we do chemistry and, and things like that. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, so many situations where I was cleaning up or, or finding precautions for fairly dangerous chemicals and thinking to myself, have we really even explored how to use more benign chemistry to accomplish the same functions? And so those were, were two experiences that I then took into the airspace sector, where, as I mentioned, I did some work in, in commercializing UAV technologies and really running with the idea of, of biomimetic flight navigation technologies. And then I uh, had kind of all my career tried to run screaming from the technical side of things. So I did what what most mediocre engineers end up doing at some point in their career, and I, and I did my MBA. <laughs> I, did my, I did my MBA at Babson College, which has a strong focus in entrepreneurship. And so I, I focus like, on tech. Like number one, 20 years running or something? <laughs> That's exactly right. We just hit 20 years as, as number one in entrepreneurship, which I am really excited about. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I think there's a misconception that entrepreneurship is about starting companies. I think that's one avenue for entrepreneurship. But what I am much more interested in is what we call intrapreneurship or creating from within. Mm. So one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing is coming to, to, to my you know, fairly large company, we're a $3 billion company, and asking, how can we do things in a new way? How can we create new ventures that will create environmental and economic value for the company and for the ecosystem in which we play, for our customers, for the industry, and of course, for the world? And so when I finished my, my degree in, in uh, uh, my MBA in entrepreneurship, I did what many entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs do, and I started a consultancy marrying the ideas of high tech and sort of tech innovation that I had experienced in a few different tech industries and the idea of sustainability. So I did that for a couple of years, had some interesting times and some interesting work, and eventually came to this company where I'm working with a number of different industries 
in helping them innovate towards sustainability. So I've been involved in some really interesting goings-on. I helped draft the greenhouse gas sector guidance to the aerospace industry, working with companies like Boeing and Airbus and Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman on how to measure the carbon associated with aircraft manufacture. Everything from that to working with the Sustainable Apparel Coalition mm-hmm. and talking to, to folks that are members of that, like from Patagonia and H&M and Nike, thinking about how they can leverage the technology that they have and the data that they have to start to associate the environmental impacts of what they do with the products that they make and start to eventually communicate that to the end consumer. Ashin, I think it's really interesting, the entrepreneurship aspect, and I feel like it has a different, um, I want to say a different skill set even to be an entrepreneur in some ways. Um, What have you found to be some of the challenges at being in a big organization versus your consultancy days uh, in, you know, being a small scrappy sort of consultancy versus this big job? Like what are, like if, if there's people who are listening, who are thinking about going into the sustainability space, I know they're wondering about this difference and, and, and where they can make a change and what are some of the skills or challenges that you found useful or, or, or uh, things that you've had to deal with along the way? And you wouldn't be championing the small, scrappy consultancy, Mr. No, founder of Lab, would you? <laughs> in no way is it easier or harder. I, I think they're different skill sets, and they they reco- and you've done both, right? So, I have indeed. So you know what the game, and I've been in you know medium sized corporations, uh, small to to medium, um, and I've worked in various roles. So I, I've I've been able to be in part of these sort of behemoths, and I've been a nice cog in a wheel, sitting at a you know, cubicle doing, doing my time every day and clocking out. But I've also (laughs) been in the startup environment or a small consultancy where you're scrambling for jobs and going kind of month to month, never quite sure what's next. So I've been in those worlds, but I wonder for you being in a sort of um, a leadership position and being somebody who's trying to make a change, I think can be very difficult. And, and, Mm -hmm. And so what are the what are the tricks you use to do that or or what have you found to be the most resilient or the mo- the most underappreciated skill set that that you've been able to harness um as you as you do your work? Well, first of all, the mindset is different. Think of it in terms of flywheels. So when you're a small consultancy as you do you're <laughs> as you do so when you're a small consultancy, you're a little flywheel, but you have complete control over it. You push the flywheel, the flywheel turns, right? But it may not turn for that long. It may not have as much momentum to, to run your vehicle forward as you would have hoped, and you keep having to push it and push it and push it, and that's sort of your linear focus is how do I keep moving that flywheel to, to move forward? In a large company, it's a much bigger flywheel, and... You need patience because you can't just throw your shoulder against it and push it directly because it's just not going to budge. It's huge. So you might search around in this giant machine and find a lever here or a cog there or a hand crank somewhere else. And in some mystical combination, seemingly, you turn these cranks and levers and gadgets and gizmos and eventually that flywheel starts turning. But once it's turning, 
it's got a lot of momentum associated with it, and it keeps driving you forward. And to sort of break down that analogy in a little bit more literal terms, what I've discovered is that I have to find my allies wherever in the organization they are. It could be, and it could be in the organization, it could be outside of the organization, it could be some of the people sort of at the, shall we say, leaves of the org chart, or it could be the people right at the top who are really convinced that sustainability is an important trend for the future, but aren't necessarily sure what that means for our business. And so my job is sort of a, a connector of the dots to say, look, this technology that we have can solve this problem that this customer has and get everyone involved and everyone interested and everyone aligned and moving in the right direction. And once things line up, man, can we really create change. But it might be end of year one, no change, end of year two, no change, end of year three, no change, end of year four, suddenly we've abated thousands or millions of tons of carbon by creating some change that was several years in the making. And that's really distinct from the way that you work in a consultancy. When you're a consultancy, you kind of go in and you say, look, I'm going to help you solve this problem. You solve that problem, hopefully. They change a few things and you kind of move on. And it's, it's what I found is the day-to-day -day work sometimes can be more tangible and more satisfying when you're a consultant, consultant and kind of working towards a specific project goal. In the corporate world, it, it can require more patience and you can do things that feel like you're walking sideways from your goal, but sometimes you look back and you say, you know, I was part of something that really created change in the industry, that created lasting change that I can point to and say, this was a contribution I had for the world. And it's sometimes challenging to remember those moments when your head's down day to day and you're kind of just, you know, throwing your head up against that big flywheel trying to get it to move. One of the things I've seen on this podcast again and again is the the importance that finding these networks of people and keeping them engaged long term is the only way that people in the sustainability community have found impact. And like you said, they could be in the company, out of the company. It, 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 it's a network that makes a difference. And... Um, as an entrepreneur, as an intrapreneur, as somebody who's doing how important is that network to you? And what are the things you do to keep that network um, engaged? Tim, it's not an important thing. It is the only thing that's important, I think, is the human connections among the people that you're trying to work with and ultimately to influence towards a, a brighter future. I'll give you two stories that I think will show that point. So the first is when I was working as a product manager, I was trying to convince the organization to create a little bit more of a overarching sustainability office. And at one point we sort of lined up our business case and, and lined up many of the ducks, but not all. And at one point I found myself out talking to an executive who was, happened to be visiting our location. And uh, this executive was actually out on a cigarette break. And so I followed this person out and said, here's what we're trying to do in sustainability. And I said, you know what? I have some objections to that, Whereas, where I don't think it's going to work here. And they raised a couple of objections. And in the span of that one cigarette, I 
sort of satisfied and resolved the objections. And at the end of that cigarette break, they said, oh, I'm going to recommend that we do move ahead with this function. And so that was kind of the final touch of, of creating this, uh, this Office of Sustainability that we had created. And so, you know, I, I will certainly not say that that was what did it, because it had been years of work uh, for me and a number of other of my colleagues in laying the appropriate groundwork. But sometimes you just need that little catalyst to, to spark that change. Another example is in working with the aerospace industry. When I first joined this group of, of aerospace folks who are working on sustainability solutions for aerospace manufacturer, immediately I started asking questions, questions that were a little uncomfortable for the industry of what are we measuring, let's measure things that are important, let's set targets for ourselves and things like that. And I was met with a little bit of appropriate defensiveness of saying, you're kind of new here. You don't really know what's going on. And you know what? They were right. But as I took individuals aside and I said, you know, teach me. What are the challenges with this? Why can't we measure that? Why can't we do that? I started to learn a lot more. I started to change the way I approach things. And I started to melt away a couple of, of their objections. And as a group, as we came together, we slowly started to ask those questions. And we started to be more intelligent about how we look towards the future of the industry and, and be a little bit more ambitious about how we look towards the future of that industry. And at one point, I was lamenting to one of my colleagues that, gosh, we've been working for a couple of years on, on this particular system and we hadn't noticed any real change. And the person said, you know, I think you underestimate the degree to which we've already fundamentally changed the aerospace industry just by doing X, Y, and Z can't necessarily tell you what they are now because they're still a little bit within the industry and, and you know, things that will come out soon. But you know, questions on things like uh, understanding the role of science-based targets and context-based targets and context-based sustainability that you know, are things that we didn't really even think about before in the scope of the aerospace sector, aerospace manufacturing sector. So I think that I don't know what the future will bring, but the small group of people that are changing the world is real. And it's, it's really the only thing, as, as, you know, as Margaret Mead said, never underestimate the ability of a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And time and time again, I've, I've seen that proved out to be true. Well, I think you said something really interesting that resonated with me there, which was uh, you have to be both uh, fearless and curious. So you have to be fearless enough to go in and say, this is what I think, make the room uncomfortable, you know, like you're coming at it from a different perspective and you're going to have a different opinion. Um, and to be fearless in stating that uh, to the sense that you're going to look like an idiot, like you're going to, people are going to think it's not uh, going to make any sense. But then to also be curious and respectful and engaging to say, teach me, I want to understand your perspective to engender that in other people as well. So they get curious about why you're saying the crazy things you are. Um, I, to me that, 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 that combination rings really true as something as a unique skill set of an intrapreneur. I think that's absolutely true. The difference between an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur in the sense of an entrepreneur being more creating from up from, without and creating to disrupt 
I think is a great approach. But the difference with someone creating from within is the degree of respect for the existing system that you have to have in order to change that system. Mm. So in creating from within, you have to figure out what's the existing system and why, not just what. Because the what may be crazy, but the why may, may, may make it make more sense. And so if you can understand the why, and then you can show the individuals involved, you know, I think these are good reasons, but we can implement the system in a way that satisfies these reasons, but also satisfies these other things like long-term futures and, and social and environmental equity, then we can show people who are influential in the system how to change it. But if you just sort of go in and say, this is crazy, we got to change what we do without understanding why we do it, then you're going to meet a lot of resistance. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of classic change management. You know, you change, you understand the system first and foremost, and then you start to slowly change the things that get the momentum going, that get the small wins, and build that momentum, show people that the change isn't scary, that on the other side of it they can emerge and be even better off than they were prior to the change, then they'll start to embrace it and they'll start to, you'll start to win converts to your side. And, and, and that's the big thing with, with intrapreneurship is you're not the one going it alone and just putting a stake in the ground and saying, I'm going to do it this way and people are going to flock to me. Rather, you're starting to build the momentum with others and build a movement so that eventually it's just sort of inevitable. <laughs> what is one of the most harmful things that we are doing today, but we don't realize? And so I'm going to preface this one this time. Uh, this question really comes from when I learned that the Romans were, uh, the wealthy Romans would eat off of lead plates. <laughs> and so, you know, it's kind of one of those things like, oh, this is our luxury. This is great. But of course, it, it had huge negative impacts on their health. Um, and so I wonder today, what are we doing that are the lead plates of today? Like, what are the things, what's harmful that we're doing today, but we just don't realize it? Man, that is a really good question. I'm going to have to think about that for a minute. That's good. And we can come back later or we can skip it either way. There's no, 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 let me, let me, let me answer it. I'm going to pivot a little bit in your question because I think that we as humanity, we do a lot of really crazy things, but the worst I think are committed by those of us who call ourselves environmentalists. And we do things like buy hybrid vehicles and bike various places. We don't really stop to measure the actual impacts of the things that we do. But if you start to look at the scale and the orders of magnitude of some of the activities that we do, you start to realize things like, oh, you know, we, I, I'm always careful to unplug my mobile phone when it's 100% charged, so I'm not consuming extra energy from the wall. But in reality, as a person who's involved in sustainability, I know that taking a little bit shorter of a hot shower actually makes much more of a difference, or does it magnitude more of a difference? And yet, 
It's just not something I think, even though I know that, it's not something I think about every day. Or you look at ordinances like in San Francisco where they've banned plastic grocery bags. Uh, and, and there's a, a big attitude that says, uh, you know, of course, canvas is better. We all agree with that. Reusable bag. But, you know, in the absence of that, let's use paper because it's a natural product. And if you look at the actual life cycle assessment, paper bags have something like five times higher a carbon footprint than plastic because it's just fundamentally it's a lot heavier and recycling it, even if you recycle it, it, you have to shred it up, you have to wash it, you have to then use energy to dry it out. And so we don't really understand the full system impact of what we do. Another example is we look at our day-to-day -day activities and try to reduce the impacts of those. And then we fly somewhere on vacation. And what we don't realize is that, for example, the lifetime environmental impact from production, use, and disposal of a tablet is actually less than a round-trip flight from Boston to New York huh. in, terms of, in terms of carbon, the carbon emissions associated with it. And so flying is just really bad, and we, we don't really think about that. We don't, we don't associate the impacts with our daily lives. You know, it's, it's, it's a vacation or it's a business trip. Maybe it's exceptional. Maybe it's just the everyday, every month way of doing business. But we don't necessarily think about, you know, I should be carbon offsetting those flights because um, that's my most impactful daily activity. So I think that the craziest thing that we do as environmentalists is do good things on faith without actually looking at the data behind their systemic effects and impacts. Yes. I'm shaking my head. There was something I wanted to add to that, which was uh, there's a piece to this too, which is an emotional piece. Um, I, I think we get, we get very energized and argumentative and excited and, and, um, uh, maybe confrontational or polarizing because of some of these issues that don't really have a big impact or that, that have an impact or that we we're doing it. And the impact is, uh, very different from what we, uh, suppose it to be. And so I feel like, uh, absolutely. You see that around the nuclear industry, right? A lot of environmentalists are dead set against nuclear energy because of the radiation that is, is emitted or can be emitted in the nuclear waste. And yet, if you think about the burning of coal, which is how, which is the most common alternative, one of the most common alternatives to nuclear energy, there's actually more uranium in the coal that we burn in total that goes up the smokestack and into the air than in a nuclear power plant. And yet, lacking that information, people focus on what's exciting and uh, easy to rail against than actually looking at, well, what's the alternative and what's the practical and pragmatic way of reducing overall the impacts of our human society? So I want to dig into that just for a second, too, because I was at a uh, I was at a conference in Portland a couple of years ago, uh, as you do, and it was for ecologists and they were looking at um, ecosystem services and talking about the environment and you know, it was probably one of the saddest things I've ever been to because they started off the conference saying we've failed for 30 years. We've been trying to communicate the importance of climate change, the the vast sort of um, uh, changes we're doing in the landscape and all these kinds of impacts. And we haven't been able to make a change in 
actual behavior or actions. Um, and so they felt at least the, the presenters and the sort of the organizers of it felt that they, they were ineffective at creating change or, or getting people to see these larger abstract pictures. And I think a lot of what we've talked about today is, is this very cha- challenge. How do you see the internet of things or how do you see this big system? How do you optimize a system that you, that you can't really feel that doesn't feel personal to you, but it is something that impacts your every day, your every life. Yeah, I, I mean, climate change could not have been constructed as a less <laughs> tractable right. challenge because the emitters are not necessarily the ones who will suffer, right? The developed nations are the ones who are emitting the most carbon, and yet island nations like the Maldives and Palau and Cape, Cape Verde are the ones that are going to be vanishing beneath the waves. We have a little bit of a challenge in southern Florida, but... Uh, by and large, we're sort of wealthy enough that we'll be able to mitigate its effects, right, in terms of the developed world. Another problem is that carbon is odorless, tasteless, uh, and uh, doesn't really have local impacts, right? It's not like uh, poisoning the river, you know, where you can see, okay, the canal caught on fire, we're probably doing something wrong. Carbon is different. It's, It's going into one atmosphere, and it's it's creating these chemical effects, uh, you know, high up in, uh, in our atmosphere that you can't necessarily see or appreciate. It is, uh, it is understanding that it's a climate is really complex global system and understanding that that's different from weather, right? I once heard a great analogy that your local weather is to climate change or climate in general, as the amount of change in your pocket is to the global economy. There's a relationship, but it's a very tenuous relationship, and only if you aggregate it among billions and billions of interactions over a long span of time. And so that relationship can get really difficult to understand and to, to experience. So I had the, the pleasure and the honor of attending the COP21 climate talks uh, in Paris, not the talks themselves, but the event around Paris where there were everything from demonstrations, from artists and activists that I uh, was able to kind of check out a little bit to uh, some of the discussions among the business community. And I would say that even at a conference where ostensibly the twenty to 40,000 people that had converged on the conference had one very specific goal to combat climate change and to to pass a uh, collective agreement that will address climate change, even then, the discussions were so different and so varied and so disconnected. I was really just disappointed that the various factions who were there really weren't talking to each other. They were just sort of hammering their own points home. And... Uh, it, it, was, it was a little disheartening to see that even on such a stage, we couldn't necessarily come together uh, to figure out what collective voice we wanted to have as humanity. Now, the good news is that the world leaders themselves had one collective voice, and for the first time in history, 196 countries comprising some 97% of the human population came together and actually came up with this, this Paris Accord, which is uh, I'm actually quite hopeful about. But 
from the perspective of those of us around our world leaders who will be charged with implementing the changes to our society and our economy, man, I really wish we could have come together in, in, a, in a greater fashion to say, look, here's my perspective. Let me listen to yours. And, and, and you know, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take several different, not just industries, but sectors of society coming together around such a challenging problem, a problem that none of us really deeply understand you know, down to the level of climate science, and I have an engineering degree, and I've done as much reading as I can, but when it comes down to, you know, do you use the radiative forcing in index to calculate the impacts of the carbon associated with the flights that you take? I don't really know, and by the way, the UN doesn't really have a definitive answer on that either. So, it's, uh, it's a really complex system, and you know, most scientists will say, yes, it's happening, yes, it's man-made, but no, we don't completely understand it. And in that, not, in that uh, lack of clarity, we still must act. And that's a really challenging thing for, for governments, for politicians, for policy walks, for business people, for anyone that's looking to make a clear and easy decision. There are no clear and easy decisions when it comes to climate. And it seems like it requires the skills of an entrepreneur to help make that happen. <laughs> okay. So here's my next, here's my next rapid fire question. Um, if, if you were to splice in one gene or characteristic from any organism on earth into people, what would it be and why? Huh. Wow. Well, a very close runner-up answer would be the spider's ability to create silk, mostly because I just want to be Spider-Man. <laughs> totally. But I honestly, I'm going to turn your question on its head and say, I think we've got all the genes we need to move forward as a human species. I think the one most important thing that we do that really no other creature does is we have empathy. We can put ourselves into other people's and other organisms' perspectives and understand what they may be feeling, understand their rationale, understand their survival instincts, and come back to ourselves and think, how can I act knowing now what I know about that other organism? And I think that is the one trait of the human species that will save us. We don't, well, okay, so that and becoming Spider-Man. <laughs> I like it. I love it. Empathy is one of those things that we've seen on this podcast come up again and again. In the people we've had come on the podcast and talk about their careers, what is the importance of empathy in your work right now? And where do you see, how have you built that? Or, or have you focused on that as part of how you do your work? Well, as a sustainability professional, I see myself mostly as a translator. Sometimes literally I speak a couple different languages, but usually more metaphorically because I'm translating between the business world and the lingo and the underlying concepts and the axioms and the unstated assumptions of people that are involved in business 
as well as those who are doing engineering, as well as those who are studying the environmental effects of these actions, uh, and those who are in policy positions and looking at passing legislation. I mean, all of these folks have different, not only do they have different uh, goals that they're coming to any particular project or any particular um, question or decision point, um, but they also have different language they use to discuss the same goals. And so as sustainability professionals, we need to understand what each of them is thinking and feeling and, and is trying to achieve both their stated, uh, stated um, goals and assumptions as well as the ones that they're unstated, maybe because they don't want to talk about their particular agendas or maybe because they just don't realize that there are assumptions that they're working on that other people aren't working on. And so I think that the role of activists uh, against industry in, let's say, the 70s and 80s was a very adversarial one. And we maybe cleaned up the worst offenders and got the business community to collectively do a little bit less bad. But, uh, uh, you know, as, uh, as I can't remember which sustainability expert said, it's like we're driving north on the highway and we realize that we're supposed to be heading south, so we slow down. And that's not really the way to change direction. Right? The way to change direction is to really uh, understand why we're going in the wrong direction and reverse it. And so now I think, you know, the, the new norm is for industry to say, look, these are our goals. We have to be profitable. We have, uh, you know, fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders. But we also have stakeholders beyond our shareholders, and we have other responsibilities to them. So we need to engage a broad set of different types of people in the community, understand their concerns, incorporate them into our decision-making matrices, and satisfy the needs of all of our stakeholders as well as our shareholders. And I think that's a growing understanding among the business community. And what I've noticed, unfortunately, is many of the activist communities and the environmentalists still have that sort of outdated adversarial mindset against the corporate world. And I think they can better achieve their purposes by understanding us and understanding where we come from. And you know what? In some cases, we're wrong. I freely admit that. But in other cases, once they kind of walk around our shoes, they'll understand, wow, you know, it's not quite as simple as I thought it was. Now, that particular chemical or that particular process or that particular product really isn't just the evil uh, and end-all of society that I thought it was. Maybe it really is doing a little bit of good to a, a big customer base, and we have to think about how we can move forward together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, last two things really quick. Are, is there any, are there any books that you're reading right now that you would recommend to people? Or is there something that you're really excited about right now that's in the media that you've been uh, consuming? Yeah, actually, I've been searching for, with a number of my colleagues, for what's next in the sense that, you know, we kind of started this whole sustainability movement in the business space maybe a decade or so ago, and uh, well, it certainly started a long time before that, but I think in its modern uh, or, or contemporary manifestation, uh, it was about a decade ago. And, and, and 
many of us are asking ourselves sort of what's next? What's, what's you know, sustainability 2.0? And one of the books that I've started reading that's really given me some great hope for the future of this country specifically is the new book that, uh, that Joel McCower wrote with um, a couple of his colleagues from the defense industry, from, uh, from the military actually. The book is called The New Grand Strategy, Restoring America's Prosperity, Security, and Sustainability in the 21st Century. And what I love about it is he kind of steps back from this whole concept of sustainability and says, it's not really about sustainability. It's about these other things that we hold dear to our hearts. Thing, uh, concepts like prosperity and security, uh, resilience, and, uh, and having a good livelihood. And kind of backs into saying, you know what, sustainability is really a key aspect of attaining prosperity, security, and resilience of our neighborhoods. And so uh, it's um, it's it's really a hopeful way of looking at the, the world in which we live, certainly in the United States, but I think if the United States can show some leadership to its peers uh, and its allies, it's really a, a, a wonderful recipe for the world. Mm, thank you. And I'll put that in the show notes uh, so people can find that. And then the other question I had is where can people find out more about you or the work you do online? Yeah, absolutely. I do tweet quite prolifically. I view Twitter as kind of the, the community in which I test out ideas and share ideas. And frankly, I see sustainability news there before I see it anywhere else. And I, I really love that medium for... Uh, having really good dialogues with a number of interesting people. Uh, I also am happy to connect one-on-one -on -one with people uh, through LinkedIn and other media. Uh, I also do some writing for GreenBiz, so I uh, introduced a couple of the concepts that I've talked about. For example, I wrote an article on how 3D printing might revolutionize sustainability, and that touches on some of the things that we've talked about today. Uh, and there's a, another article or two where I kind of just spelled out a couple of the ideas that you might take a look at and think about and hopefully inform the way that, that you look at the world and especially the digital and technological world as it relates to sustainability. Well, thanks, Ashina. I'll, I'll include links to all of those things in the show notes. It was really lovely having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with me today. Thank you, Tim. And let me take a moment also to say that it's wonderful that you're bringing together all of these thought leaders and individuals around this idea of life-centric design. I think it's a topic that we need to talk more about in our design spaces, in our society, in our economy. And that's a wrap on episode five with Machine Fanzi. I hope you enjoyed it, and as always, thank you for listening all the way to the end. Life-Centered Podcast can now be found on iTunes, and if you like what you heard, it really does help us out to give us a rating, make a few comments, or share the link with those who you think might enjoy the episode. Until next time, this is Tim, saying over and out.